0: All right, I'm back again with Gene Epstein. Gene's a longtime friend, um, former books and economics editor for Barron's and he now runs the Soho Forum, uh, which is an incredible place to to go or to listen into if you're interested in genuine debate, um, which can be hard to come by these days. Um, Welcome to the show again.
1: Thank you, uh, Brittany. And uh, since you mentioned the Soul Forum, let me do a couple of plugs. First, to any podcast listeners, and of course you have tens of thousands out there who love podcasts, uh, we do have the Soul Form Debates podcast, which uh, collects all of the debates that we've done since the fall of 2016. There are more than 50 on podcasts that are available, and I do recommend it to anyone who likes to listen to one-on-one debates. I myself have done six out of those 50 debates, uh, and uh, I recommend those in particular, but there are others that are also worth listening to. And speaking of me, I'm going to be debating in person in a physical space on April 18th in uh, in uh, Florida at the Villages in Florida. Go to thesohoforum.org uh, for information about tickets. Uh, I will be debating once again capitalism and socialism, but I think it should be pretty lively. And uh, we are going to have a reception afterwards. Uh, we're going to be... Uh, Following through on our twofold mission, which is not just to have a debate of interest to libertarians, but also to have a meetup, a party afterwards where people can meet, greet, exchange ideas, and have fun. So that's Sunday afternoon, April 18th, in the villages in Florida. And that's about an hour north of Orlando, and of course, you can do uh, Disney World and then come north to the villages in Florida to catch that Sunday matinee, and I'm turning my light back on. So thank you for allowing me to do that plug, Brittany.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, and I'll I'll put a link in the show notes, too. Yeah, yeah. So the last time we spoke, we spoke yeah. up a couple of weeks ago, yeah. covered a lot of territory, and I had some questions left over, mm-hmm. although I think we did sort of touch on, on much of it in our in our discussion Mm. but what i wanted to ask you about first was um a few days ago jordan peterson uh put out a tweet Mm. asking who he should have on his podcast to talk about austrian economics and Mm. your name came up Mm. um some other people's names came up Mm. and um i don't i don't want to put jordan peterson on the spot here so i i Mm. would just be interested to know If you were invited on the podcast Mm -hmm. of someone who was coming at Austrian economics from a sort of a novel perspective who either doesn't have a background in economics at all, or, you know, has sort of a neoclassical economics background or to whom this is, is is unfamiliar, but they're interested. Mm. How would you introduce somebody to Austrian economics? What do you, what would you say Mm -hmm. are sort of the the main things to understand about it what sets it apart from other other schools of economics Mm -hmm. and particularly sort of what passes for the mainstream economics Mm -hmm. in in the U.S. um how would you start that conversation
1: well with Jordan Peterson I actually would use as my hook something that he has said a number of times he has talked about uh The idea that people with very low IQs, I guess below 70 uh, or below 80, uh, are basically unemployable. And uh, he thinks he has a good point when he cites the U.S. Army. Uh, He says that the U.S. Army uh, will not admit people of, uh, I I think the threshold is 70, uh, uh, will not uh, admit people with a below 70 IQ. And he takes it for granted that if the Army can find no use for these people, then nobody else can. Now, uh, ironically, uh, so to speak, ironically, I come at this uh, not because I necessarily know Austrian economics, but it certainly helps for me to recognize that the free market is a little bit different from a bureaucracy like the army. You know, it helps to be an Austrian to understand that. And then on top of that, because I was a columnist tracking the numbers for more than a quarter of a century, I know what the private labor market numbers look like. And I know that it's quite clear that people below IQs of 70 have regularly had jobs in the free market. I know that mm. from the percentages. I know that if they're employing like more than like 95% of a certain segment of the population, it's got to include a fair number of people with very low IQs. And so I would point out to Jordan Peterson that That in his mindset, he sees no distinction between government's ability to navigate the economy or navigate the labor markets versus the private sectors. And a lesson of Austrian economics is that the creative challenges uh, are such that uh, that that private sector people will find jobs for low IQ people because to speak uh, in crass terms, there could be money in it. That if these, these people working at even the official minimum wage can produce value and private sector people can find jobs for them. And so he gotta get off that hook and recognize that. And uh, then that would, I guess, segue into my basic point about what Austrian economics is all about. Um, Austrian economics perceives the economy in a holistic way. By by holistic, I mean to to contrast it with the ways in which uh, the uh, the mainstream looks at it. The mainstream looks at government uh, uh, on the one hand and the free market on the other. Government consists of relatively wise people, Wise people who are, advi- or of course, advised by economists like the mainstream, advised by, of course, the patron saint of the power grab of economists, John Maynard Keynes, whose basic idea is that I want a, a seat at the table of power. I want to be able to advise. Politicians about what to do about all those crazy animal spirits in the private sector. So that's the viewpoint of the mainstream. It's a full employment plan for economists, and so the the perspective that 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 the mainstream takes is then very different from the Austrian perspective. The, the second perspective that the mainstream takes, that's related to their bid for power, is, is to regard economics. As a branch of physics, as a branch of mathematics, and this, of course, makes makes economics very esoteric, and therefore means that the economists have even greater opportunity to have a seat at the tables of power. By contrast, Austrian economics recognizes that uh, that human action is at the root of what goes on in the economy, and that there are different ways of motivating human action via uh, government versus the free market. Uh, so uh, then we then recognize that institutions like the Federal Reserve are not necessarily uh, institutions that consist of philosopher kings that oversee things and that try to make things better. Uh, they consist of, of people who are motivated in a certain way, who have a certain perspective that might cause them to do far more harm than good. And uh, so I, I guess that pretty much summarizes it because once you take that holistic perspective about human action and human motivation in markets and the incentives that government offers versus the incentives that uh, that the free market offers, then uh, you, you have a very different perspective and you come to very different conclusions about where the economy is headed. You recognize the ways in which the Federal Reserve, in particular, could be a danger to the free market rather than a uh, a help, rather than an aid. You recognize the ways in which to return to my example about the army and people with low IQs, you recognize that there are things that government will do and things that government cannot imagine doing that creative people in the free market can do. So i mean that that pretty much covers i guess my essential summary. I could elaborate on these points in various ways with Jordan Peterson. Yeah.
0: So there's one, one thing you say yeah. um you yeah. talked about talk about imagination can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me that's really an important key in having a discussion be- between you know, ourselves and with with somebody who's coming at it from kind of a more I don't want to say as a central planning mindset. Well,
1: totally but that's
0: okay. Well. Yeah. I, I so let me put it this way. I think yeah. I think a lot of people have a central planning mindset mm-hmm. without ever intentionally having adopted a central planning mindset. I think I think mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. kind of and we're seeing that with the pandemic, you know, it's mm-hmm. um sorry, my cat's here battling me for table space. Um <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Yeah. But but I think we're seeing that with the pandemic. There's this yeah. unspoken assumption yeah. that the only way to yeah. deal with big problems is through some centralized planning mechanism. Oh, yes. oh, and yeah. if you have an understanding of Austrian economics, yeah. I would argue if you have an understanding of 20th century history, yeah. you would know that that's the complete opposite of what needs to happen. Yes. But it seems to be the default mindset mm-hmm. that, that we're, we're brought up in or that, that our culture has, has created. And so that's kind of what we're speaking into when we're talking about Austrian economics, when we're talking about free markets at all. Mm-hmm. We're speaking into this, this belief that the norm is central mm-hmm. planning, that the mm-hmm. norm is an authoritarian system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And g- given that, you know... When you have smart people, you know like Jordan Peterson coming at it, who are going to use their their sort of analytical capabilities to try and figure out what can and can't happen, mm-hmm. you know it's it's very easy to make to to come up with reasons why something's not possible. Yes. And I think if everything we did in life were subject to that standard that you had mm-hmm. to prove it were possible before you did it you know, 90% of what humans do wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I lived in Hong Kong for seven years. And when I hear people here in the U.S. talk about, you know, thing, things like that, like, well, you know, there are some people who can't who can't find employment. And, um, you know, if, if you have a free market, big corporations will just take over and and all these things. And I saw with my own eyes that not happening. I saw with my own eyes in Hong Kong, in Vietnam, as it was just, you know, when it was just starting to open up in China, when it was opening up, you know, I saw what economic reforms and what economic freedom provided for people at the lowest level, people with, you know, zero education or close to zero education, people who lived through war, people who, you know, Hong Kong was built by refugees, basically, you know, they're built by people who came with nothing and, Mm -hmm. Built up lives for themselves and and the city. And yet if someone had sat, if some bureaucrat had had to sit down and say, and make a proposal and say, you know, here's why this will be a success and I can prove it. They couldn't, you you Mm -hmm. couldn't, you couldn't prove that a priority. Mm -hmm. It's the, it's, it's the imaginations of tens of thousands of people coming together and making their own decisions and, Mm -hmm. you know, pit that against academics who, you know, are, are, have entire careers built around, you know, coming up with reasons why things can't happen. And that, that to me seems to be a big part of the battle, that it's this theoretical construct of, you know, what I personally can imagine as an academic versus the reality of what people come up with on their own Mm -hmm. when they're Mm -hmm. in a situation that requires it of them.
1: Yes. Well, you, you, uh, you prompt some some thoughts in me, which I'd like to go over. Uh, those are very good observations. Uh, uh, let me mention Thomas Sowell. I was recently tweeting about him. Uh, you know, he's um, both, in one sense, a Chicago school guy who's got some value, but also he's got some very good Austrian instincts. And as he as he puts it over and over again. Even even the, the smartest, most knowledgeable people uh, you can possibly find uh, about where the economy should be going, how things should be planned, what the future will bring, even the greatest seers, if you had 100 of them in a room, they're not going to approach the, the, the fragmentary knowledge that is combined in several million people pursuing their own ends in an economy, so of, of whom, of course, those several million will frequently. Consist of entrepreneurs with ideas that nobody has ever heard of, outlandish ideas that turn out to uh, be very, very fruitful, and so that's of course. Uh, the dilemma we face, because sole grants, you know, that maybe okay, maybe these people aren't uh these the people in charge are usually just power hungry ignoramuses. Uh, it that's the reality. But so are these grants for the sake of the argument that maybe you do have some really wise people running the Federal Reserve, some wise people running the government. You know, Obama, what a great guy. He took he decided that Solyndra, you know, the uh, the solar uh, energy company was the way. Of the future, and he, and he sends government money their way. So, uh, Obama is a pretty smart guy. So, why don't we allow him to plan the economy? Now, that, of course, was a stupid decision. But again, going back to what Sol said, 100 of the smartest people in a room are, are just know a fragment of what the millions of people operating in an economy know because they are operating through the lash of profit and loss. They are making plans. They are using trial and error. They are the people to listen to and to allow... uh, to uh, plan the economy because that's the way the economy prospers and flourishes. But I also want to pick up on a point you made about uh, about the pandemic. You recently had Knut Witkowski, I guess it's the way it's pronounced, on the show, uh, a really brilliant epidemiologist. And um, I, uh, I like to say to Knut, that when he talks about herd immunity and the inevitability of herd immunity and letting herd immunity happen as the only real solution, Martin Kaldorf, actually, Martin Kaldorf is another guy who's not quite an Austrian, but I like the way Kaldorf puts it when he describes herd immunity. He said, herd immunity is not a strategy. Herd immunity is no more strategy than gravity is a strategy when you're landing Mm -hmm. a plane. It's just, that's how pandemics end, you know, that it comes to uh, it comes to, uh, to, to earth because of herd immunity, and uh, the only thing I, I I like to say to Knut. Is that you should preface your point about herd immunity by recognizing that it's kind of a tragic view of life, that it starts with the assumption that a virus, a killer virus, really has hit. It will kill and hurt certain people. There's no way to prevent it, Uh, at least no way known to man at this point, Uh, setting aside Knut's nutrient solution, which we get into, but no way the vaccines are not going to do it. Why can't the vaccines do it? Because viruses respiratory viruses constantly mutate, constantly change. They're built to evade vaccines. And so that begins with the tragic sense of life, which is that, uh, that a a virus is hit and it's going to do some damage. But how do we mitigate the, how do we lessen the damage? What do we do? Do we bring in government? Well, government only makes matters worse. It makes mutations more possible. We allow herd immunity to happen. And that sounds grim. That sounds like, not sensitive to human life, but that's unfortunately our only choice given the tragic fact that the respiratory virus has hit. Nature gives us a way to get out of it through herd immunity. Now, there's an analogy there between uh, uh, economic bubbles and and allowing Mm -hmm. the free market to solve the problem. No, Mm -hmm. we didn't bring on the economic bubble. We didn't welcome it. It was actually usually brought on by the government, by the Federal Reserve. The housing bubble was nothing that the private sector created. It was created through government government policy. Um, And so it's tragic. Uh, uh, An economic bubble in the stock market is tragic. Malinvestment in any, any industry is a series of errors that have to be corrected. We didn't create them. We think it's unfortunate that it happened. But moving forward, what is the solution? The solution is only to allow the bankruptcies to happen, allow the malinvestment to reorient. That's tragic because it's tragic because it means that some people are going to get hurt, that businesses are going to fail, that some people are going to lose their homes. Bad things are going to happen. But just like herd immunity, it's the only real solution because if government intervenes and creates zombie companies that stay alive only because they're getting government subsidies, that's only going to create worse problems down the road so it's a similar approach which recognizes that when a bad thing happens it's not like we rec- that we're like we welcome the bad consequences we only recognize going forward as austrians that if, that the bankruptcies have to be allowed to happen because that's the only way for the economy to move forward and so again i'm analogizing the herd immunity uh, yeah, no which, it's and a great when analogy i mentioned this, it's a when great... I mentioned this to Knut, he he appreciated it. i said i don't of, I, I said to Knut, to Knut, I don't know if you care about this. Knut said, No, no, that makes sense. It makes sense to me. So I, I turned Knut Woodkowski into an Austrian because he recognized the same point. And indeed, the respect that even a Kaldorf has, and I forget that lady from uh, London, from Oxford, she's Gupta. made some, some. was
0: that? Sun- Sunetra Gupta.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, right. And she's uh, she's made similar points. There is a uh, interestingly enough among epidemiologists, there's a kind of an Austrian approach, a Hayekian approach, and an approach that's shared by people like Thomas Sowell, who I think has been very articulate on that particular point. Uh, so well, I, I think I, I think
0: there is a there is really a a, <clears throat> a common ground there that yeah. I'm very interested in with sort of people who recognize that we're part of nature that that as human beings we're part of nature and that Mm -hmm. fighting nature usually ends up you know not working out well for us yeah Um, i I would i mean of course
1: yeah we're part of nature of course i would admittedly part of my hobby horse is that to say that we obviously want to harness nature we obviously want to modify nature but of course i think that particularly these days, it's important to emphasize that side of it, what you just said, that we are part of nature. We we, we, we work with nature, but we, we can't supersede nature. Instead in of
0: taking a sledgehammer to it, yeah.
1: Precisely, yeah. yeah. But I mean, obviously, uh, if we let nature take its course completely, then uh, we'd have more we'd have a little bit of trouble, but clearly right. it's important to emphasize what you just said, that, that nature actually uh, uh, does uh, work on our side with respect to viruses. Nature nature does inflict the viruses on us though, so recognize. That that's yeah. a tragic fact. And, and the only thing I like to point out to Knut is that I wish you'd at least say that it's not as though I welcome the harm and, and, and the anguish that it's going to cause in people if we allow herd immunity to happen. It's just that this is a way to minimize the, the loss of life. This this is the, That's the point. And so because the point is that when you say, oh, let herd immunity happen, it makes it seem like you're callous. Similarly, right. when we right. say let the bankruptcies happen, it makes it seem like we don't care.
0: Well, and that's partly, I think, because there's, there's th- this – unwillingness I think I think there's just a short-term mentality that's very widespread and there's an unwillingness there seems to be to look beyond the immediate effects and if and government you know anyone speaking on behalf of government exploits that to the maximum effect because if you if your argument is you know, it's it's going to be less costly in terms of lives or in the case of banks failing in, 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 in terms of, of dollars, in terms of economic harm to people. It's going to be less costly if we take the harm now than if we impose this pretend solution because that's really what it is. It's a pretend solution. The lockdowns were a pretend solution and bailing out corporations and banks is a pretend solution. Yeah. It only makes things worse. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people can't hear that in the moment they can't hear the part about it going to be worse in the future you know the reason we're having the reason we've had economic downturns recently is because there were bailouts in the past um and it's getting past that Mm. inability to see beyond the immediate you know i think there's a belief that if the state can step in and do something and you know, erase the pain momentarily or or even, you know, in the case of the lockdowns, it didn't even do that. But if it can make it look like it's taking care of the problem momentarily, you know, what happens in the future kind of doesn't matter or we're not going to think about that now. Mm-hmm. And I think part of part of um, I'm not even going to say Austrian, just part of economics generally is you look at you don't just look at this moment in time. You look at the impacts down the road. Um, yeah. And you, well, one one specific thing I wanted to to ask you about I was
1: correct you on that Austrian, So, go, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> okay, no, no, we'll, well, okay, let me just ask my question first. Oh, yes. um, that before there was FDIC and before there was a central bank, isn't it true that there were numerous bank failures and they didn't bring the economy down?
1: Numerous bank files that didn't bring the economy down. Well, no, uh, I I have to say that a lot of what I've learned uh, about uh, the uh, pre-Federal Reserve, I've learned from George Selgin. And Selgin, for example, was very good, I remember, in a debate when he was talking about the consequence of bubbles. Now, um, Selgin has taught me that government intervention uh, pre-Federal Reserve was quite extensive, uh, Hmm. uh, and and that there were indeed recessions. Uh, uh, Selgin makes two points that I think are worth emphasizing, since you you raise the question number one uh, that uh, in particular uh, the uh, the banks. For many decades, even post Federal Reserve, were not allowed to branch. When there was, it was called unit banking. In particular banks sort of like this, but it meant, in particular, that banks were very unstable because of government regs. That meant, for example, that if a bank in a particular area just lends money to soybean farmers, and that's all it does, then yeah. then if there's a problem with the soybean crop, then it's it, it, uh, it's uh, creditors, if it, uh, rather it's debtors are going to be in trouble, it won't be able to collect money and the bank could go, on, go under. And so there would be a natural tendency, as indeed has happened over the last 20 years, which actually has been by and large a good thing, a natural tendency for banks to branch with others so that there's diversification. And, mm-hmm. and what would have happened had banks been allowed to branch is that they would naturally, of course, have dominated the banking industry, uh, b- banks branching with with uh, other banks that lend to, uh, to heavy industry or to other kinds of agriculture. And so that's just one good example of the instability that was induced by government. The other one had to do with the way in which the government was actually strangling the money supply. I could go into that one. But so therefore, there was extensive uh, intervention on the part of uh, banks prior to the Federal Reserve. And the interesting part of it is that after the panics of the early 20th century that uh, motivated uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve in the U.S., there was actually a pretty sophisticated understanding on the part of many about the ways in which government should be reformed. But they were superseded by, by the banking interests that wanted to create a central bank and strengthen their hold on the, on the economy. So it's actually is an interesting story. It's not as though there was, there was not pre, uh, a good percentage about why the economy was unstable prior to the Federal Reserve. But I want to add one other point, because it is significant that that Selgin also makes, which is that despite the problems pre-Federal Reserve versus post-Federal Reserve, or even, even if you take the Federal Reserve post-World War II and forgive the Federal Reserve for the Great Depression, even if you do that, then you find that the economy, according to any indication with respect to instability, with respect to recession, with respect to inflation, the economy performed better uh, pre-Federal Reserve. That was my next post. question. So therefore, so the Federal Reserve made matters worse in every respect anyway, even though Selgin insists it's not as though I'm making a case for... Uh, the way in which the economy was run pre-Federal Reserve. It's just the Federal Reserve clearly, on the basis of any before and after uh, uh, examination, me- clearly made matters worse, uh, even though it was supposed to make matters better. But, I mean, you you asked that question, so I thought it was interesting that that's one thing that Selton, I know I think, knows pretty well. And even though he doesn't call himself an Austrian, he's learned a lot from the Austrians. Getting back from your, to your statement about, well, you don't have to be an Austrian. It, 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 is true that there are Chicago school people, fellow travelers with the Austrians who uh, share our view about about the ways in which you have to lead, you have to respect the ways in which the free market can solve a problem rather than just bringing in the government to intervene. But but by and large, uh, the mainstream economists are still hungering for that power. The, the young economists mm-hmm. who are still dreaming of becoming chairman of the Federal Reserve rather than confronting a bunch of bored and indifferent students and getting your articles published, being a sloppy-ass professor. My God, how can that compare with being one of the most powerful people in the world, Alan Greenspan or Bernanke—I mean, this is what they dream of: uh, the going to government and uh, and 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 being drunk clashing Potomac fever as they call it and so that's really what motivates them and so uh, that I, I it's part of my hobby as well that many people many economists actually are Austrians even though they don't quite realize it part of my hobby is to say that Austrian economics is almost a redundancy that that when when people ordinary people just start thinking about how markets work how people are motivated in markets how human action operates in markets. I use that phrase, of course, because that's the title of Ludwig von Mises' great book, Human Action, that they naturally sound like Austrians. And that's true of many people on the mainstream. Milton Friedman, by the way, who wrote Milton Friedman, the great free market Chicago school guy, who, who wrote some crazy things about methodology and economics. When you actually read his books, his popular books, or read some of his popular essays, or listen to him on his famous PBS show free to choose he sounded like an austrian he he was basically using the 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 logical arguments of austrians about how the, the way people operate in markets so it's it's almost the way in which we naturally fall into it and indeed my my uh, discovery when i first read man economy and state more than 40 years ago man economy and state by by Murray Rothbard which is the book that that was an absolute. Uh, my road to Damascus for me changed, altered my thinking considerably uh, in, an, in a totally different direction. I discovered that 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 Murray Rothbard was also echoing for me the way in which I naturally start thinking about economics. And but of course, when I say it's natural, I admit that uh, that your point uh, is well taken, which is that unfortunately it seems as though people naturally think when they look at. When they look at um, epidemics uh, like COVID, when they look at recessions, they naturally tend to think that the government is the only solution to the problem. Uh, They they naturally, uh, in particular, of course, in the case of recessions, they naturally forget that the government... uh, cause the problem because they don't even ask that question and my god there's just so many academicians so many people who are supposedly quite smart who just are in particular I'm I'm focused on the 2008-2009 housing bust uh, which I lived through amazing that this was the most palpable example of a government induced bubble and a government induced recession and yet uh, there's so many people who, who who should be well informed who are absolutely Blind to that fact, who blame it on the free market? So yeah. that's another yeah. long-winded response to some of your pretty uh, good perceptions. I did want to mention because I noted it down when when you mentioned big corporations and uh, and uh, and how they dominate. Obviously, the other Austrian perspective is always to ask, what role is government playing in this? Um, it's always to to understand that government is a player in the drama. Government is not is not the maestro that's leading the orchestra. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an orchestra and it's going off tune just to continue my analysis, government government might have the instrument that's that's creating the most dissonant sounds at all of all in the orchestra it might be causing most of the reason why why uh, why it's it's going the orchestra is going astray so if you ask that question then you can then what's staring you in the face for example, is that the big tech leaders like Zuckerberg and Bezos? They're constantly getting hauled to Washington and intimidated and browbeaten, and and nobody asks. Well, maybe maybe these guys are a little bit afraid of what government will do. Maybe that's why they're behaving like censorious. Right jerks. Right. and maybe they're getting co-opted. Maybe they're also being told, you know, just cozy us up to us in government, and your your control of the market can be retained. We can keep out your competitors. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what's happening. And yet we see these people before committees, and and uh, so many people on the uh, on, on the progressive left don't don't ask themselves, well, maybe it's because uh, be, 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 because uh, Biden and and Obama before him were were uh, co-opting people like Mark Zuckerberg, maybe that's why the big corporations are be in the case of big tech are behaving the way they recently have been acting.
0: Yeah, no. And that's, I think that's supported by, by the evidence. One thing I wanted to get back to, you said, when you read man economy and state, it kind of changed your way of thinking. What was it about it? What was, what was the, was there like an aha moment? Was there a certain thing that he said or, or a perspective that you hadn't, what was, what was different about that from what you been reading in the past
1: yes well uh, to begin with of course the broader perspective of starting with the individual and then working outward and then uh, and then recognizing that uh, that government uh, is, is is a part of the drama it's not overseeing the drama it's just a part of it But then uh, my particular story was that at the time I was teaching mainstream economics in college. Uh, I never took a PhD, but I had a job as a professor, and uh, also I was hearing a lot of left-wing economics because I was at the New School. So that was pretty much the only economics I knew. But uh, but because I was teaching at St. John's and the City University, I had to work from a standard textbook, uh, and uh, and and teach concepts like imperfect competition uh, and concepts like land, labor, and capital, and. Uh, the uh the digressions in that book meant a lot to me when uh, when Rothbard picked up on certain concepts of the mainstream and then Put them in an Austrian context. That's what impressed me the most because of that's that's where I was at at the time. I, I always say to people, probably the first, your first book on Austrian economics should not be Man, Economy, and State. It's a little bit dense. It was my first book and very appropriate for me then because I was teaching and I was in my enmeshed in mainstream economics. Uh, one of one of the examples I could choose, which I guess is the briefest one which also uh, meant a lot to me from the standpoint of left-wing economics was that was that Rothbard uh, gave us this very straightforward reasoning about the role of these three uh, different uh, sources of production, what's called land, which includes resources, you know, oil and coal, and also, of course, land that you cultivate. So that's the natural bounty. And then second, of course, is labor. And the third is capital. And so the, the mainstream teaches you that, that it's land, labor, and capital. And this is the irony. And, of course, the left wing says, well, the capitalist isn't entitled to anything. The capitalists are just exploiting you. Uh, so that's that. that was interesting. And then here Rothbard comes along and says, well, actually, capital is not a source of production. It's not an original source of production. Why? Because capital, which is like offices, stores, factories, capital has to be made from land and labor. That's all capital is. And and then, so Rothbard said, you ask, is there a return to capital in that sense? The answer is no, capital gets no return. And uh, because land and labor are the sources of production. That's what capital comes from. It's it's secondary. And so that, that might not strike you, of course, as such a great insight, but then it just put a certain framework on things. And then, of course, Rothbard asked, well, why then do capitalists get any money at all? And then he explained, of course, that they get money, they earn something because they they advance resources, they advance money to land and, and labor in order to produce something. They have to wait for their return because the production process has to be over, and the production process can sometimes last years before they get any return at all. So they put something forward, and they won't, of course, unless they can get some return later on. The capitalist is the, it plays the waiting game, is the patient waiter. Uh, that's a bad word because that's... <laughs> Sounds like it works in risk. Wait for the return. So yeah. that's what he explained. And then, of course, then there's the entrepreneurial profit. The pro- the capitalist is taking a risk uh, potentially, uh, and and won't take that risk unless there's some uh, 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 promise of an even better return. And of course, the capitalist might suffer losses. So so capital and capitalists are very different entity altogether. And so what I liked about this insight. Which you know, you with such simple common sense reasoning, and yet you won't find it in mainstream textbooks. Uh, uh, and uh, what I liked about it is that in a way it said to the left wing, you know, you're more right than you know. You know, capitalists don't get anything, only land and labor gets paid up front. It, the capitalists have got to risk something, that's why they get anything in the first place. And by the way, oftentimes they get nothing at all, right, they right. Lose.
0: Or, or lose everything.
1: Precisely. They make a yeah. bad bet. And so it's a very different category altogether. And what's interesting, then, when you think about it, is that the mainstream is so static in its viewpoint that it sees all this capital that's available, that's been built up, and it sees that the capital is being sold and bought and enhanced. So so it sort of takes it for granted that it's a fixed source of mm-hmm. production. Whereas Rothbard was able to see through the obvious point that, Whatever capital you see came from land and labor. So that that was one uh, insight that made me recognize that well, this is a way of thinking about economics that really makes sense. That doesn't doesn't get admired in in, in thoughtlessness. And of course, obviously, the uh, the, the time preference point, which uh, when I said waiting or the waiter, uh, that that of course is a key insight as well. Why do you have interest? at all um, uh, uh, why do you yeah. charge an interest rate at all and then of course you can think of crusoe and friday uh, and on that island uh, are, they gonna, are they going to they, they, are they going to are they going to build anything are they going to build a boat that takes them further out to sea so that they can catch more fish That will only build it if it can indeed catch more fish because by the the time that they're spending building that boat is time that that's taken away from satisfying their immediate wants. so that's that that's the capitalist who waits. So all of that reasoning made a lot of sense to me, and it's very, very difficult to find anything like it in a mainstream text. The mainstream texts are often filled with all kinds of, Inconsistencies and digressions, and sometimes they give you some insight in that, into that. But oftentimes they don't. I could elaborate. I mean, there were other other key insights: imperfect competition, the, the crazy idea on the part of the mainstream about a, a company being imperfectly competitive, monopolistically competitive. Rothbard cut through that one as well. I could go into that story because it is kind of funny. But uh, I do yeah, want to I
0: would like I'd like I had because I had another thought um oh, okay. about what you just said, but let's let's hear that let's hear that first. Okay. Well it
1: it, it starts with a good example of a barbershop because the funny part of it is that the barbershop is the example that was used by Paul Samuel in Paul Samuelson, of course, being the guy who wrote the best-selling textbook, which Samuelson is dead and the textbook has been eclipsed. But Samuelson was the guy who ran the show for many decades. His textbook was the textbook that everybody read. And so he used the example of the barbershop. Okay. The barbershop is called Mario's Barbershop. And Mario's Barbershop is monopolistically competitive. First of all, It is competitive because it's a barbershop and there are other barbershops. But it's monopolistically competitive because it's called Mario's, and it's called, co- and because it's called Mario's, it's kind of a monopoly. Because Mario, uh, being one of those crazy capitalists, wants you to think that only his haircuts uh, are, are, are the really good ones. You know, he's trying to market himself. He's trying to put a personal stamp on the fact that he runs a barbershop. and that, and, and the barbers who work for him are also, of course, trained in Mario's style. So uh, it's therefore for a a barbershop that has a monopoly on being Mario. So that's why it's monopolistically competitive. And indeed, I'm just articulating what Samuelson wrote. Okay, then the next step in it is to say that because it's monopolistically competitive, and now be prepared for this one, it's always operating uh, below its capacity. It's It's always investing in excess capacity. It's always inefficient. It it um, it's it's below. It's not at the at the bottom point of its average cost curve. It's always got excess capacity. So it's a waste. It's stupid. It's terrible. He carries on about this, about about how it's
0: also got to be overcharging its customers, too. Right.
1: I guess, I guess because he's you no, know, I'm not clear. About, well, yeah,
0: indeed. Obviously,
1: uh, you know, I have to think about that. I, I forget if Samson actually specifically wrote that. It, it's very inefficient because he's investing in too much capacity. I guess he must be overcharging. Of course, you and I would say as Austrians that that that's he's, he may well be overcharging his customers, quote unquote, because he wants people to believe that Mario's touch when it comes to giving a haircut is worth a premium because that's what motivates people in a free market. They actually are pursuing monopoly. You know, Gene Epstein would probably like the, the world to think that there's absolutely no substitute for Gene Epstein even though I secretly know that there is also Bob Murphy and, and Brittany Schaffer probably wants the world to think that too although she secretly knows that there's also Tom woods so there probably are a few substitutes more or
0: less but we're we, all monopolistic competitors well we
1: all seek monopolistic competition we're all monopolistic com- competitive but uh but I I, I want to get back to the excess capacity part of it because this was the point that Rothbard. Uh, Emphasized, and that Samson empathized. Emphasized, they are always at excess capacity, and and uh, and setting aside the overcharging, uh, which I forget if Samson went into, they are always at excess capacity, and this means that there's an immense amount of inefficiency going on in this market. And now, 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 ask yourself, why is it? That, uh, that they are at excess capacity because of something that I'm not going to be able to explain because of the way the curves are drawn, because the demand curve is going back down and is downwardly sloping. And because the cost curve is something like this uh, and and the tangency, uh, nobody's going to follow this on, on the air, but I'm going to say, trust me, if you draw it the way, draw the curves, the demand curve and the cost curve, the way that Samus tells you to draw it, then they will always at excess capacity. But then here's here's the really funny killer, which is, why? Uh, what evidence does Samuelson suggest is independent of that? What evidence does he himself observe about Mario's barbershop always being at SS capacity? He says, the chairs in the barbershop are empty much of the time. And even before I read this in Rothbard, read Rothbard's refutation, it occurred to me that Samuelson being an academician, a professor, probably was able to take his haircuts during the week and never on the weekends. And uh, what he didn't realize is that on the weekend, at least in those days. These days, of course, it's a little bit different. But on the weekends, uh, there's a line. There's a there's a there's a, there's, uh, there's a glut of people who want a haircut because that's their day off. So on Saturday, uh, a lot of people are coming in for a haircut, and there's nothing that Mario can do about it. Mario can't say, "Please come on a Tuesday." Well, I'm working on a Tuesday, and Mario would like to work during the day. So he has to plan. Uh, uh, conventionally for the difference between the peak and trough of demand. He knows that, that the chairs will be empty much of the time on a Tuesday when Samelson comes in for his haircut. But, <laughs> if, but if he doesn't build up more chairs, if he doesn't have more capacity and more people working for him, he's going to lose out on a lot of business that comes in the door on a Saturday. So that's probably why it's happening but this was beyond Samuelson he couldn't understand uh, mm. w- uh, why Mario might have planned on those extra chairs uh, and so uh, but then in particular then getting back to Rothbard's critique Rothbard then actually quotes somebody else as saying this uh, is it really it does it really make sense that that monopolistically competitive firms would as a practice as a pattern always invest in excess capacity, what makes them all so stupid? Why do mm-hmm. they do that? Why Why don't... And obviously, some will invest in, in excess capacity. Some may have not enough capacity. People are making mistakes. They'll,
0: why would they do something that's going to cost them they, more for no return?
1: Exactly. What sense does that make in the first place? Although my barbershop point, by the way, in Samuelson, this confusion about those chairs probably makes the most sense. That's why Samuelson got confused. But, yeah. uh, but about, uh, interestingly... Uh, it indicates why Samson chose a barbershop as an example because probably he observed those extra chairs and he said, Aha, Right, no, that's hilarious. This, that's I've got to put this in my textbook. So, yeah. so, so Rothbard sort of kills the idea by saying, Look, whatever the, in the way you'd say, whatever the curves that you draw look like, the demand curve and the cost curve, it, it makes no sense in the first place. If you think of human action, if you think of people trying to maximize their, uh, their situation, make the most revenue they can, uh, it makes no sense but then uh, putting a cherry on the on the cake uh Rothbard then shows that there are two different ways to draw the demand curve and cost curve geometrically, so that you can actually show that they are, are actually are at full capacity, that they actually are at the bottom. He he shows that that it's actually a trick of geometry. He gets into Samuelson's own tech, own sandbox, and redraws the curves in two different ways, and showing that it's not inevitable, even in terms of Samuelson's own geometry. But well, here's anyway, the. other
0: op- yeah, here's the other yeah. thing about that, and and yeah. <clears throat> there's been so much written. I mean, my dad wrote about antitrust. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have 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 written about monop- monopoly theory and and how crazy it is. Um, yeah. I think it was it was it Dominique Armentano who oh, yeah. who talked about um, how basically anything, but you know, y- using standard monopoly theory, any business could be considered a monopoly, or oh. or could be sorry, not a monopoly, but could be considered to be in violation of antitrust. You know, either either oh, yeah. you know oh, yeah. oh, price yeah. collusion or overcharging or under you know
1: charging overcharge yeah as long yeah yes but, but oh, what's
0: but what's sure. what gets what what i think is missing from the from even from the chicago school yeah. is that let's let's say that samuelson's analysis of the barbershop was actually more accurate let's let's say that he observed something that we couldn't explain and it's some Okay. You know, Mario has some edge on 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 his little barbershop economy in that in that region. and oh, yes. he's overcharging yeah. and has excess capacity, whatever whatever right, claim yeah. Samuelson is making.
1: All right. What's missing is the only barbershop in town and you have to travel miles to get a haircut anywhere else.
0: Yeah, and yeah. he's, yeah. you know, he has has the population enslaved because he's the only barber and, you know, they have <laughs> to sell, okay. they have to sell their furniture to come and get a haircut and it's just it's devastating. Um okay. yeah, well. What's missing in that analysis is that it's it's a static picture of one point in time. Yeah. And it doesn't and I think this is a big problem I think this is a big distinction between sort of the, the the mainstream schools and Mm -hmm. the Austrian school Mm -hmm. is that the Austrian school does spend a lot more time on looking at non-static analysis, looking at, um, you know, time preference or just time generally. And the fact that, okay, let's, let's say you have identified a monopolist in the free market Mm -hmm. and this guy is, you know, and like I said, enslaving the local population, it's terrible, they can't do anything about it. Yeah, they can do something about it. Because as long as they're not, as long as there's not some kind of, you know, prohibitive barrier to entry, somebody else can come in and rectify that. Mm -hmm. And I think what what the mainstream economists miss is that markets are self-correcting. They're mechanisms that happen over time they're not static snapshots. And what we're taught in, at least like in, in undergrad, you know, economics classes is to look at static snapshots Mm -hmm. and, oh my God, there's a problem. Let's say that they have actually identified a real, uh, 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 let's call it a market failure, because that's Mm -hmm. the term they like to use. Um, The problem with that is they're not, they don't then go on to show how Markets might then correct that that problem, and the other problem is yeah. that, yeah. at least at least as I was taught it, maybe mm-hmm. maybe others, you know, got it got something different, mm-hmm. but it's this huge leap in logic because there's there's let's again problem identified, and it's automatically assumed that well this means we have to have government step in and do something. Mm-hmm. There was never again. Where I went to school, there was never any explanation for how government was going to actually make it better, mm-hmm. how we weren't going to end up with the same problem, given that government itself is a monopoly, mm-hmm. um, how it wasn't going to make it worse, um, or or why we expected the solution to work at all. So there's there's again, I just I just sort of liken it to this to magical thinking that yeah. well we have a problem we can't quite understand we don't know what to do about it, therefore government has to step in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, well, well I, I, I wanna pick on up on uh, your insightful point and mention a couple of things then. Uh, What's also interesting then about the mainstream and when they posit uh, the existence of a monopoly or an oligopoly of three or four firms, that uh, they will always be uh, uh, monopolies will always be hiking their prices, taking advantage of the situation, and and then we see uh, this also on the curves that that it that it could be on a certain point of the demand curve, and therefore it's suboptimal because the price is too high. It's got a monopoly, and therefore the amount that that's being sold is not enough. And so that's what the curves tell us. But then getting to your dynamism point, uh, the interesting part of it, and that's uh, that in a way is uh, almost uh, often in my mind, the most important critique of the way in which uh, the mainstream gets it wrong, is that most of the time, The dynamic viewpoint is indeed completely understood by this so-called monopolist. Most of the time, this so-called monopolist recognizes, if I keep my prices high, I'm going to invite competition. I'm going to invite entry. And so the real offense, and historically, what antitrust has gone after is those goddamn monopolists who keep their prices low. And uh, and here I'll I'll quote Thomas Sowell again, who said that that's those are the people they go after. The people have achieved a monopoly because their prices are rock bottom. You know, starting with John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil, who kept yeah. lowering his prices. He never raised a price in his life. All he did was cut prices and cut prices. And as Sowell jokingly says, uh, the the argument on the part of anti trust is that well, of course this guy is charging a low lower and lower price, but. But someday he'll raise his price. Someday he'll take <laughs> advantage, of it, even though the, right, the, he'll capture I, the except, whole
0: market and then.
1: Well, he, well, he, well, he, he has much of the market because he's got, he's got, he's got too much of the market. He's got a very low price, you know. he's got Mario has a usually has a very low price, but indeed. Get, picking up on your point, it's really that the perception of 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 of, 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 the, of, the, of the of the of the Sam Walmart of uh, 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 Sam Walton of Walmart, the perception of the Bezos is that if you ever start doing that, if you start hiking your price, you're going you're going in the long run going to undercut yourself. That's a perception that these so-called monopolists already have. Yeah. So that's why it's actually uh, not the case that that they will take advantage of the situation with, with the hiked prices because they know that that's a dangerous thing to do because they're one step ahead of what the mainstream e- economists understand uh, uh, the, uh, with respect to the dynamism of markets. And so that's pretty much is the way it is. And if you actually look at the appalling record of antitrust, it's antitrust going after uh, uh, businesses that charge too little. Uh, always mm-hmm. that charging too little. Uh, now, there are other crazinesses, is, which is that they'll even go after businesses that uh, that that barely have much of a presence in their market. Perhaps you know the story that Whole Foods Market, uh, uh, run by John Mackey, who's a libertarian, it, it never had more than 1% of, of grocery sales. I guess to this day, it's got about 1%, 2%. It wanted to acquire another uh, store, I forget the name, that produced organic food Foods and, yeah. uh, and 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 antitrust stood in its way. It had to fight uh, and to spend millions of dollars fighting antitrust because antitrust is always fast on its feet. Does does Whole Foods account for just one percent of all grocery sales? How is it even in the textbook sense where we're always told? Well, a, a, a monopoly consists of at least three or four firms that start colluding. What did Whole Foods have? 1% of the market. Well, all you have to do is redefine the market.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: It's no longer longer grocery sales. It's organic food sales. Who who even knows how they even came up with that? As though Trader Joe's and all the other grocery stores couldn't just as easily bring out organic foods, which of course is a quote unquote concept because who knows what it really is. All food is sort of organic. But anyway, so that's the other ploy that they pull. But I want to revert to the other side of it, which is that when you say, well, let's take it all the way and say that Mario is abusing, he's charging a lot. You know, that does happen. And, I, I, and, and so I do have to grant that there is, a, is occasionally, so to speak, market failure. Cap- Capitalists and entrepreneurs don't often behave the way you would like them to behave. And that Mario is prob- probably flirting with bankruptcy, flirting with problems if he keeps his prices up too high, because he could be inviting competition uh, into that town. Uh, and uh, which would undercut him and take away a lot of his business because some people might resent his high prices. So maybe there is such a thing as, as an abusive and self-destructive Mario operating in that town. Um, I, 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 I would only revert uh, to the, the argument about the record of antitrust, which stares you in the face. It's really just a horror story of, of, uh, of a bunch of busy bureaucrats and ambitious lawyers who have to keep active, who want to go after somebody and will use any excuse to do so. And so uh, it's difficult actually to find a case in which we had an abusive Mario. He's charging too much. He's charging $50 a haircut and he should charge 30. And so the government marches in the cavalry comes and says to Mario, you could earn a decent return if you charge just $30. And that's what we're going to tell you to do from now on. You just charge 30. And, uh, it's difficult. And I guess we'd have to say, well, I guess it would be better if, Mar- if Mario charged 30, uh, because first of all, he could keep out competition. If we brought the government to do that, wouldn't that be a decent outcome? It's just that empirically, it's very hard to think of ex- uh, of, of that ever having happened, because uh, we have a government that really isn't motivated to correct markets. Gov- we then, I, I would yeah. then, by the way, int- introduce what is called a, a Public choice theory, right? Uh, I
0: was
1: just gonna, I was gonna go there. But but uh, versus private choice theory, and of course those people aren't considered uh, Austrians, even though, by the way, the best stuff on public choice was actually written by Friedrich Bastiat, the French free market oh. economist, uh, who wrote, uh, you know, in the middle of the nineteenth century about uh, the idea that it, that if the private sector gets it wrong, we assume right away that the government sector is going to get it right when when they're likely to get it even worse. They're yeah. not motivated. To help. but and that's anyway. that's
0: the whole thing I think that's yeah. what getting back to sort of the magical thinking yeah. analogy to me it's like there's there's this belief and it is almost like a religious belief in the benevolence of the state and you know even even in the econ classroom where it's never explained why we should why why a government solution is going to fix this market failure why it's going to make it better, um, and then out in the real world, we see that you know antitrust, for example, has long been used as a club by government. It's it's you know the the Microsoft case, the Microsoft trials in was it '96, um, yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. which was clearly brought brought by Microsoft's competitors. And I hate to defend yeah, Microsoft, sure. but yeah. <clears throat> you know, but it was clearly bought brought by its competitors mm-hmm. who used mm-hmm. antitrust as a club to beat up the competition. Sure, sure and I mean. that's And that's the regulatory state across the board. It's not just antitrust, but it's really, there's this widespread perception that it's there to protect the consumer, to protect individuals from, you know, businesses and from market failure. Mm -hmm. But again, when you actually look at the history of it, look at, look at what's been done with it and look where we are now, you know, because of regulation, you know, here in California, it's, it's. Maybe one of the best examples. It's one of the most highly regulated states in in the country in a number of areas, mm. and it's tough on small. I mean, there's been a small business exodus from this state for the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, people, I think, there's there's this um, unwillingness or, or inability to see that. The regulatory state is sort of the opposite of what it claims to be. What it actually is, is a club for powerful companies to beat up potential competitors.
1: Yeah, I I, I would uh, I guess if if, if we're uh, speaking to the ultimate skeptics, then I would bring in the hardest cases of all, which is public utilities, and uh, and there I would say that it is true that if you have a building, you don't you don't want uh, you don't want to 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 create five different holes on the wall to to bring in five different potential sources of electricity. You you only you will only contract with one. Uh, company to bring in the electricity. but uh, then again, of course, that company will, of course, have uh, multiple p- uh, potential providers of the power, so there is competition there. But I will readily say that when it comes to bringing in water or bringing in electricity, there's, so, it can only be one source. There's that it, with respect to where uh, the power uh, meets the consumer. But then there are all kinds of ways in which uh, the government uh, also then creates problems because then it creates these public utilities, these public utilities that have no particular motivation uh, to, uh, to, to, to charge low prices. They work on a sort of a cost plus, plus formula. And then the government brings in intervention that says that here's a massive subsidy or beyond that, you must use solar energy. We'll, uh, we'll both subsidize it and force you to use it, force you to use an unreliable source. We'll force you to become a sort of bureaucracy that that can only raise its prices and not lower them. In particular, for example, it's been pointed out that we have a, a, a big collapse in the price of oil, uh, price of natural gas. All of those sources of energy have have fallen in price uh, by and large because of fracking. And yet, uh, public utility prices continue to rise. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yet, and they should have fallen. Of course, one of the reasons why they've risen, of course, is because uh, because of the the enforced use of of solar and wind energy. But beyond that, well, it's because, because there's,
0: say, there's no incentive, there's no yeah. incentive. You know, they're not going. to not yeah. going to go under. The, my yeah. local utility is not going to go under yeah. and yeah. probably no one's going to lose their job. Yeah. If they're doing a crappy job. Um, and th- I would go further than that and say, yeah. you know, this past year, I think we've seen some really good examples of why you don't want government in yeah. charge of the quote unquote natural monopolies. Yeah. You know, right here in my town, I think I talked about these guys the last time we spoke, but yeah. Tinhorn Flats, yeah. the lo- our local restaurant who's been defying the lockdown orders, um, they have been attacked by the city. I mean, they had their license pulled their conditional use permit pulled. They've just they've been taken to court several times. And finally, the city um, asked a court for permission to cut their power and water, which they did. And then, you know, to, to their credit, some, some locals came and brought them a generator. But But yeah. the point, I think the lesson from this is, do you really want some central authority to be able to dictate whether everybody gets power or everybody gets water? I mean, we're seeing right here it's a tool for control Mm -hmm. if if you're a business and you don't do you don't you know jump when the state says to jump and and by the way these are dictatorial orders they're not laws um you're going to get your power cut off Mm -hmm. is that really the society is that how we want society organized um and the other the thing that's always sort of struck me is well okay let's say You know, yeah, that's that's true. It does it does sort of make sense. I only want one water line coming into my house or my place of business. I only want one power line. I don't want. I don't need you know a dozen different ones to choose from. But then, if it really is a natural monopoly, why does the state have to prohibit competition?
1: Yeah, well, that's right. Excellent point. I. To try to make that point to people, and, and indeed, uh, you know, there's some otherwise sophisticated people who literally say, uh, "My," <laughs> I'll mention Michael Schellenberger has written some brilliant. Work recently on uh, on uh, alternative energy and nuclear and the rest of it, but he does repeat that point. So I'll I'll, I'll stab him in the back behind his back. Michael Schellenberg goes, well. Look, you got to admit that uh, that government's got to be involved because you know you can only buy one source. <laughs> well, if you only buy one source, what do you need government for? <laughs> then you'll only right. buy one source. But right. but but I, of course I would I would embellish and elaborate on your point and say that uh, that certainly housing complexes, for example, could have their own gen. Generating capacity. Uh, if if uh, if if even a detached home, if you find that you've got some lunatic company hiking the price because they think they have a monopoly, then you can install your own generator. It's it's somewhat costly to do that, but if they're charging a low a, a high right, price, right. then you can install uh, your generator. Uh, it certainly if if uh, if the local company is indeed also abusive, then another company could come in and say, look, we we can. You have a right on your property to cut off their pipe and take in our pipe. So even then there's Mm -hmm. the potential for entry, uh uh, for competitive entry. And as I say, the the easiest recourse on the part of you know one third of the population that lives in apartments is that they can have a reasonably efficient source of independent energy if they don't like the way the power company is charging uh,
0: well uh, I would also, you know, to get back to to the issue of imagination, I would also say that, you know, I have, I have no idea what it might look like if it were freed up. I don't know. You know, if, 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 if all of a sudden we got rid of, of natural monopoly and, and state monopolies on, on power, water, yeah. utilities, I don't know what might pop up. I didn't foresee Uber, you know, and I've written on taxis. I, I wrote yeah. a piece about, about the taxi industry in Hong Kong and You know, I could, I could, I could write a great piece about how messed up it was, but I didn't have a solution. And then finally someone came up with a solution and it's like, well, okay, I didn't think of that just because I can't imagine
1: what the solution
0: is going to be doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to come up with a solution. I have no idea what it might look like.
1: No okay no then that's a good point. I mean I I, I would I would say that uh, that your your point should be a part of uh, what we'd explain which is to, uh, and then then I would elaborate on your point and say that that raised uh here I am 76 years old and I was raised on the idea that you need to set up lines with a landline in order to talk to people on the phone uh, and and now uh, n- not long ago I learned from Matt Ridley that that cell phones could have been introduced about 50 years ago except the government stood in their way and then mm-hmm. We find that that third world countries are actually circumventing that, that right. part of their development. They don't right. put up those stupid landlines because they all own cell phones in poor countries, and yeah. so uh, we don't know how electricity could be uh, could, could could be uh, delivered. Uh, uh, and uh, if if uh, if you did have a free market, there might be other creative solutions. With that said, I would still want to emphasize that when you think about it in in practical terms, statements like "Well, there can only be one." Provider of of, of of water and one provider of electricity. That that you that there are other things to be said. That that there is pl- room for competition and there's room for pointing out that you create monster behemoths. You you create government lunacy when you then put these companies under the control of government and when you don't allow market competition to happen. That that even then the most extreme case, the natural monopoly of the public utilities, is really not uh not really a natural monopoly that you'd want to uh want to allow government to control and so that's the extreme case that we pretty much have dealt with but with that said we want to concede at the end of the day that there will be market failure well and of course the worst market failure of all is is people who go into businesses that fail because then they use resources that aren't that, that are no use to us but 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 if somebody's going to lend them money they're going to go into their business and they're going to fail restaurants fail all the time we see failure all the time, but it's such a non sequitur to imagine that that if markets fail, governments can succeed. I sometimes want to join an analogy for uh, for example, with all the ways in which families fail each other. You know that that uh, should that government step in? Ver- verbally abusive environments, because it's true, the government will step in if a kid is hit too hard with a stick. But but how about but how about all of the abuse that happens in a family where people verbally abuse each other and and I, and i hate to see that bullies who are, are verbal abusers and uh, and 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 there's a natural idea that of course the social workers should step in should do tabs on verbal abuse should jail people who do it should regulate families should step in because the family failure is ubiquitous uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, I, I, it makes the same amount of sense to talk that in those terms as it does to talk about government intervening in uh, in markets
0: right and, and, I, and I wonder we, i wonder you know did did Samuelson ever look at the market failures or I shouldn't say market failures, but did he look at the inefficiency in his solutions? You know, so if there's, if the solution is to have the state take over utilities, did he ever do an analysis of, of the inefficiency there?
1: No, of course not. No. look, he was hung up on those on Mario's barbershop. But also, I mean, <laughs> you know, perhaps perhaps you know as well that that Samuelson produced that famous graph about how uh, uh, in his textbook showing the the output of the of the u s economy versus the output of the Soviet Union. if you're familiar with that he he was he kept publishing this graph showing that in a few years or in ten oh, years
0: oh that was Samuelson.
1: Yeah, that was him. Okay. I remember
0: hearing about this in in high school. There was this big concern that they were going to...
1: Outproduce us. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and... uh and and uh and so he he kept publishing this and updating it uh, you know every time the textbook got updated that they're gonna produce this but but my point is that it was not that that this was a a, a forecast that was proved wrong that, that that was not the important point the important point is that by and large the u.s economy was much more market oriented and capitalistic than the soviet economy the soviet economy then was measuring not gross to domestic product, a gross national product, but government's national product. That that Sam, what Amazon didn't realize is that he's measuring different things. Mm-hmm. It, comparing a, a market-oriented economy with a government-dominated economy, you're not comparing the same kinds of output. You're only comparing the output that government dictates, very, very oriented toward heavy industry. All kinds of chaotic planning that about which Samuelson was completely clueless. So that was that 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 was not a graph that was worth publishing. He was not measuring the same things on that y-axis. That was the fundamental obtuseness of of Samuelson, the great Nobel Prize winner and the dean of mainstream ec- economics, that he couldn't understand the difference between Soviet output and U.S. output, uh, given the differences between the one economy and the other. But
0: I think that's a common. I think that's a common. Misconception, or our common sort of misunderstanding about what economics means, or what what economic well-being means, because you know we can look at GDP, for example, and oh, you know it's a big number this year. That must be good. But what's really important is what are the people in that economy get getting? What are they producing? What are they getting for themselves? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, yeah, just producing bridges that go nowhere. Yeah. No I'm- that's that's not a value. and i and I feel like the the Austrian school really looks more at the focuses on what is a value to the people participating in the economy mm-hmm. as opposed to how many tractors did we make? Mm-hmm. And am I right about that, yeah. is that well, no, a, I, a I, distinction I, with me.
1: I'm uh, I'm about you know like ninety percent of the way with you on that one. I mean I will say that that aggregate numbers you know dollars and 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 uh, price indexes do have some value. Uh, they they are, they do have some contain some information. But as you perhaps know, you know people like Don Boudreau, There was another group down at the Dallas Fed that was that was doing research on what people were really buying and consuming. And and I mean. Soul does this a lot as well to talk about well what does it mean to be poor what what uh, how many poor people own a car how many poor people own a microwave or an air conditioner and so that that uh, that kind of information I think uh, is is very important and valuable I mean the next part of it is we have to ask well are they doing it on borrowed money or not so we have to ask related questions about that but certainly it's it's important to ask yourself what are they really buying what are they really consuming and and then when you talk about out, uh consumers spend consu- consumption in those physical terms, then you begin to realize that uh, that that certainly e- e- equality of cons- of consumption has narrowed. That that the di- that the difference between a rich person and a poor person, or as somebody likes to put the Maasai warrior who owns a smartphone now, has has access to the same technology that Bill Gates has access to, that Jeff Bezos has access access to. So we realize then that that uh, that when we look at actual physical goods and services that people buy that there actually has been a leveling, a narrowing. And indeed, uh, part of the Point I like to make about medical care is that uh, uh, until about 1950, uh, the medical care actually did more harm than good. And of course, maybe you'd argue along with Jeremy <laughs> Hammond. <that laughs> no still comment. So, so when you read about John F. Kennedy uh, and his back problems, and and how his father got him all these expensive operations that that crippled him, that caused him more pain over and over again, you begin oh. to have a vivid example of the fact that those of us who couldn't afford medical care prior in 1950 were quite fortunate that that rich people's access to medical care did more harm than good, and that, of course, you know, Jeremy Hammond would say those poor people who can't afford the vaccines are probably lucky. Those of us who can are unlucky. So you get all kinds, you get into much more interesting uh, issues when you actually look uh, beyond the veil of money and price indexes and, and look at what people actually consume. By and large, as I say, the major lesson in it is that by almost any reckoning of over the last 50 years, 30 years, 40 years. This really has been a narrowing of inequality rather than rather than a widening. That yeah. that that the thing that the that that the, the ways in which Bill Gates or Bezos or the rest of them live better than we do are not that important. Right. Right. They have bigger houses, you know, what do they really, I guess the you know, the one thing to latch on is the convenience of having your own private jet. I, I was that, gonna
0: say that. Because <laughs> that's the yeah. thing that,
1: that you can get hung and up on. And the
0: freedom to travel.
1: Yeah, yeah, given, well, you know, I can afford to travel, but but I don't have enough money for a private jet. And given the way in which the government deals with us, when we go to an airport, then then having a private jet is a great advantage. So that's about yeah. the only difference between Bezos and me, which is that he's got the private jet and I don't. But otherwise, we're pretty similar.
0: Well, and he can buy a chunk of the government and you can't.
1: I forgot that part. You're right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. Not that you want to, but if you... <laughs>
1: Yeah. He's got access that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they can buy him. They anyway.
0: Well, yeah, it works, but it works both ways. There's a, there's yeah, a yeah. price. There's a price yeah, yeah, to that. Yeah. Um, I got to let you go. It's been like an hour and a half. Um, oh, okay. But I think we need to do this again. Cause there's, you've raised a lot more questions and, and issues. Questions. And, and yeah. I'd, I'd like to get back in. I'd like to get more into the sort of Austrian economics for oh. beginners kind of stuff. Cause I feel like oh. there's. Um,
1: oh, that's I a lot had, of fun.
0: No, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's um let's do this again. Yeah.
1: Will do. I look forward to it and talk to you soon. Okay, thanks.